my name is Russell McDougall. I am at the University of New England, where I'm, I'm professor of literature. Uh, I've been working on and off on Xavier Herbert for most of my career, I suppose. Um, and so I've sat many for many, many hours in this library reading those manuscripts with a magnifying glass um, and also in uh, all of in the Queensland Library and so forth. And uh, I'm hoping at long last my biography of Xavier Herbert will appear next year with, um, with a Dutch publisher, Brill Rodopi. There's, an, there's a comment on... Um, yeah. Yeah, I did the ADB entry, and um, yeah, there's a lot of mistakes people make in, in Xavier Herbert's biography. Like, no one's made it today, actually. But um, uh, you know, for example, assuming that he he'd been superintendent of the Aboriginal compound before he wrote Capricornia, whereas he actually wasn't. You know, that was something where life imitated art rather than the other way around. Anyway, I'll give my paper. Thanks for staying till the end. Um, so, um, this is the definition of genius that appears in Xavier Herbert's own personal copy of the Concise Oxford Dictionary, the 1929 edition revised by H.M. Fowler, which up until Herbert's enlistment during World War II, he carried with him wherever he went, from the Aboriginal compound in Darwin to his remote bush camps in the Finnis River country and beyond. And this is it that I have with me. Uh, so you can see that it still has its thick canvas-bound cover custom made by Fang Chung Lung, Darwin's most prominent um, Chinese tailor. The cover was fitted in 1938, uh, although Herbert must have had the dictionary for several years by then, because the front pages contain a draft list of characters for Capricornia in his own handwriting. And some of those characters are in Capricornia and some of them are not. Some of them are slightly different. So we can be pretty sure that he had that dictionary with him while he was working on Capricornia and he must have read it continuously. He was an autodidact and um, he just sucked everything up like a sponge, um, which is why he could Partly, I suppose, he could never stop talking. Um, <coughs> and I know he read it continuously because he's marked words through it, from A to Z. Um, uh, and I don't know what interested him particularly about those words, but certainly genius is one of them. And interestingly, he also added some Aboriginal words to the dictionary in his own handwriting, which must be very, very interesting and ahead of his time for, for thinking to do that. But this one word, genius, stands out. For one thing, it's a word he used in every one of his novels, um, in different contexts and with different shades of meaning. 
he uses it four times in Capricornia, eight times in Sevenimius. Um, yeah, I know. Uh, which, of course, is a much shorter book. He uses it seven times in Soldiers, Women and 26 times in Poor Fellow in My Country. I'm not going to do some ratio. But I will have a look at some of those uses later on. It's important to note, though, here that Herbert's increasing interest in the concept of genius over his career was completely out of kilter with mainstream public interest. In fact, a search of the content made available through Trove by the National Library's Australian Newspaper Digitisation Program across the whole of the 20th century confirms a dramatic decline in interest in the concept of genius. A restricted search for references like literary genius reveals an even sharper decline from what was a pretty low baseline to start with. As a point of comparison, you might like to think about musical genius, which starts from a baseline twice as high as that of literary genius, and through the 1920s it actually begins to rise, but then it falls away too, to almost nothing. Sorry? Not as much, no. But it, I think I stopped... That's why I stopped in 2009, because they have got a bit beyond that. But um, I think it's fairly full up to the end, end of the 20th century. Um, but, yeah, there's some... Look, there's some variables here. The novels are... Particularly with, with the one about Xavier Herbert's usages, because I don't know how you compare a novel that's the longest novel in the English language... 26 usages compared to seven emus, which is not, not, not even really a novel, it's a novella. So, I just, this is very crude kind of stuff. That's all right. Um, baseline for, for uh, public interest in evil genius at the beginning of the sentence is three times higher than for literary genius and five times higher than good genius. Although that's hardly surprising because Milton has shown us that Satan has a great many more lines than God in Paradise Lost. But the overall trend of declining public interest in genius in Australia is, I think, interesting in relation to the question at the heart of this symposium, um, which, of course, I don't need to reiterate, because the ideas of genius are crucial to, to Herbert's fiction. And I don't think that the fascination with genius in his work can be merely sheeted home to his own egotism. As early as 1935, in a private lament written in the agony of waiting and wondering if Capricornia uh, would ever be pub published and thinking how he'd already half killed himself for his genius, he came to the conclusion, my genius is not I. True, the subsequent success of Capricornia did give him a sense of destiny, but the pressure of expectations arising from that belief soon proved crippling, because like most of us, he had insecurities and vulnerabilities, which in his case ran deep, and which along with the confusion and interruption of World War II denied him the career trajectory that he'd worked towards and that he'd imagined for himself. The first application of genius in Capricornia is to Norman Shillingsworth, who, in the racial terminology of the time, is a half-caste, 
Although until he reaches puberty, he's under the belief that his mother was a high caste Javanese rather than an indigenous Australian. But at that stage of his life, at least, Herbert subscribed to the belief that genius is transcendent and will always find a way to express itself. What have I got here? I've got a... <coughs> yes. Um, this is to show that genius is not always transcendent. Um, and Norman's adoptive uncle, Oscar, is on the verge of packing him off, him off to the south to avoid likely embarrassment when Norman su um, surprises him by establishing a means of permanent water supply on the driest part of the station. The novel identifies this explicitly as proof of genius, likening it to a magical device for converting dry season cattle carcasses into gold and contrasting it with the expensive and fairly useless hydroelectrics plant that his father, Mark Shillingsworth, has erected at his camp on the island of Flying Fox. I think that's particularly interesting in view of the fact that at the time, as the, the industrial world was turning to oil and it seemed that Australia had no oil wells and the dominant uh, belief was that hydroelectricity schemes such as those that had already been established on a small scale in Tasmania were generally too costly and impractical. And as the research had indicated, it would always be possible to obtain adequate supplies of oil on a payable basis. Uh, and at the opening of the 1930s, the Hume Weir had been under construction for more than a decade. And the idea of a power station to produce hydroelectricity from it seemed like a pipe dream. It's also... Also interesting to consider Capricornia's discourse on dams. We can safely say that Norman does not inherit his genius from his father. Herbert did originally conceive of Mark literally as an art, he says, an artist at heart, but he cut that from the manuscript before he published the novel, leaving the more satirical reference to, um, to Mark Shillingsworth's rather Heath Robinson design skills. Norman's design, rather, is simple and based on careful environmental observations. Mark's design is intricate and ingenious, but it's useless because it only works when the tide is running, which is when it's not needed. So I want to observe three things there. First, the stress on environmental observation and understanding and on accommodating culture to nature, which puts Herbert way ahead of his time environmentally. Of course... Um, so, sorry. Uh, the second thing is the distinction between ingenuity and genius, which is to say between false and true genius. And the third thing is the fact that true genius, as a force of nature, is associated with a deep sense of place. It's often said that genius is an 18th century idea because that's when theology lost its battle with psychology and genius came to be seen, as Edward Young put it, the God within. Before that, it had an external spiritual point of reference from Socrates' idea of the demon to the Christian idea of the guardian angel. 
But from the 18th century on, genius is individualised and essentialised and its core feature is originality. You could have talent and by careful study and rigour and application of established rules, you might produce something pretty remarkable. But genius, by definition, refused to follow rules. Genius was intuitive. In uh, Young's highly influential Conjectures on Original Composition, published in 1759, he distinguished between two different literary methods. The imitation of works by other authors and the imitation of nature. The first he described as a kind of manufacture wrought up by those mechanics, art and labour out of pre-existing materials, not their own. But the second was of a vegetable nature. It rises spontaneously from the vital root of genius. It grows and it can't be made. In other words, genius gives us an original creation whereas talent can only give us some kind of duplicate of what we've got already. The imitator is a transplanter, or to put this in a post-colonial context, an importer of goods and ideas that maybe won't grow so well in foreign soil, whereas the original writer creates something new, seemingly out of nothing. So fast forward to June 1935, to escape the overpowering influence of his prospective publisher, P.R. Stevenson, Herbert has relocated from Sydney to Darwin. He's got a job as the acting superintendent of the Carlin Aboriginal Compound and he's hoping to make it permanent. He's also hoping for pre-selection with the Labor Party. And out of the blue, he receives a package in the mail from Stevenson containing his manifesto the Foundations of Culture in Australia, the opening chapter of which is titled The Genius of Place. We know that Herbert was inspired by this, but we don't know exactly what he thought of it. This is Herbert's copy, the one that actually arrived in the mail when he was, in, when he was superintendent of the Aboriginal compound. And... Um, in the back of it, he scribbled a rough draft of a kind of Creole creation story, which, he's never, which was never published. I think he lost this in World War II. Um, and, the, and the title of that story is Karamia. Of course, you know what Karamia means. Um, but Karamia Lu, which is to turn it into something kind of Aboriginal. Um, or to, the other title is The Singing Girl. And it begins, once no wattle grew about Katoomba. And as you can guess, it concludes in a blossom of golden cloud. So in between you learn the story of how wattle came to grow in Katoomba. It's got a story form that Basil Hansen... You'd like that. That Basil Sansom, in his uh, anthropological discussion of Herbert's literary production in the middle years of his career between Capricornia and Poor Fellow My Country calls an eruption story. For which reason he accuses Herbert of being a looter of Aboriginal culture, pretending to originality, but in fact being nothing more than an imitator. 
It's a story form that Sansom found in the Daly River area, with which Herbert was familiar, characterised by an eruption of dreaming into post-colonial history, always at some crucial moment, which is the turning point of the narrative, after which it turns the action to dreaming purpose. So the charge of bad faith here, I think, is important because, as Sansom observes, while the novels Herbert wrote between Capricornia and Paul Villa, My Country, were arguably his worst, the stories he wrote over that time were in many ways his best. I don't have time to go into the pros and cons of Sansom's argument, with which I disagree in a complicated kind of way, which is not so easy for a literary scholar to argue with an anthropologist anyway. Um, but it is worth pointing out that Poor Fellow My Country itself is structured around two eruptions of dreaming, and that these are roughly equivalent to two symbolic moments in the structure of Capricornia. In other words, the two novels reveal a structural consistency that I would argue refutes Sansom's characterisation of the middle period as one of plagiarism. In Capricornia, the two moments are the set piece of contact history in the first chapter called The Coming of the Dingoes and The Death of a Kangaroo, which is Tim O'Cannon's death at Blackadder Creek, which is cast as a kind of metaphysical blessing in disguise in reward for his loving and adopting a half-caste child to which he's not obligated by blood. The equivalent eruptions in Poor Fellow My Country are first the opening set piece, again, set at a waterhole, as in Capricornia, but this time where the cult man, Aboriginal magic man, materialises from out of the bush shadows like the golden flicker of the catfish arising from the emerald depths of the pool of the unconscious. And the second moment, when Jeremy de Lacey is asleep in a creek bed, not unlike Black Adder in Capricornia, and in a waking moment of twilight dreaming, he's given a glimpse of his own Aboriginal soul. Now, I do want to um, say something about Herbert's response to Stevenson's Foundations of Australian Culture. Um, at the beginning of that period that Sansom calls the middle period, and of Xavier's career, Herbert's career, and which in my biography I designate as the lost years. A few years earlier, Stevenson and Herbert had agreed that Australia's cultural development should be based on what they both called the spirit of place. Capricornia expressed this clearly as an indigenous spirituality, heard in the Song of the Golden Beetle. But Stevenson had come to believe that political action was necessary to emancipate Australian culture from English domination. And his interest in Indigenous culture had lessened as Herbert's had grown. Where Herbert envisaged the Creole nation, Stevenson saw a new Britannia, racially pure. Herbert tried to tell him, we're not Australians, only these lucky people are. He'd stopped calling them half-caste by then. He was calling them true Australians, Euro-Australians. He loved them and he envied them and he cursed the fact that he'd been born a colonial pommy 
Stevenson nationalism, on the other hand, was heading towards fascism. Herbert's was heading towards some kind of Jindawarabak ideal of a cultural fusion. He was an unpublished writer. Well, he wasn't an unpublished writer. He was an unpublished novelist. He wasn't taken seriously. He'd been publishing in popular fiction magazines. So let's call him an unpublished literary writer. Um, in an uncultured frontier town, a lapsed Catholic who lived with a Jewish woman whom he said was a widow to avoid the embarrassment of the fact that she was married to someone else. He lived in the Aboriginal compound. He was hated by Darwin's white society and he felt himself constantly diminished. It helped for him to think of himself as a victim of mismatched identity, a biological error unacknowledged by science, an Aboriginal soul trapped in a white man's body. On a good day, he could stand back and cheer his, his own performance. He was such an interesting and surprising cove, extraordinarily open-minded. On a bad day, the idea of mental illness gave him relief and refuge. He began to forget that he was supposed to be in charge of the Aboriginal compound and he imagined himself as an inmate. He took an Aboriginal woman as a lover and as he acknowledged Stevenson's package with a strange exclamation, imagine Capricornia written by a half-caste. Clearly, his idea of genius had begun to shift. He felt himself to be a poor copy, a colonial pommy. How could he be original if he were not Aboriginal? And he had an answer, which was love. His idea of the true Commonwealth before this had been broadly socialist, but the nation of reconciled racial difference that he now envisaged was one spiritualised by the genius of love, which, as he saw it, was actually an indigenous concept, the genius loci. And that's where it all started to go wrong. After Capricornia and his experience of fame after the incarceration of his publisher as a threat to national security and after his own completely debilitating experience of military service in the Second World War, he withdrew from society and isolated himself almost completely to avoid confusion and distraction. He closed himself within, self-reflected and loveless. He became more interested in knowing himself than in knowing others. And this inevitably distorted his sense of self and he became more frustrated and fearful of failure. He was torn between the tutelary spirit of his imagination, his good genius, and the destructive capacities of his evil genius, self-interest, resentment and anger rather than empathy. His genius became his enemy. Like Charles Kett, the evil genius of Norman Shillingsworth in Capricornia, a character who lives in constant shame and fear, an illegitimate and an outcast who hates half-castes as he hates all natives who remind him of his own illegitimacy. The Chinese-Australian poet Yang Yu accuses Herbert of bad faith in loading the dice against Ket by making him part Chinese and part Aboriginal, as opposed to Norman Shillingworth being part white and part Aboriginal. In the identity stakes, in other words, people of Asian background in Herbert's fiction don't have a chance. But evil and good genius, as Herbert saw them, were not exclusive categories. They were interrelated. 
At one stage, while he was writing Poor Fellow My Country and in an effort to secure his own happiness, he cast his partner Sadie in the role of the custodian of his genius. But there were inevitably times when, he, when she seemed not to understand his genius or perhaps not to be interested. And when, and when those times came, he worried that she might be the projection of his own evil genius, luring him toward damnation as Hitler had lured Stevenson. Since his death and the minor industry of Herbert's scholarship that has followed it, as Robert Darby notes in his review of Francis de Grohn's biography, Herbert has been convicted of nearly all the seven deadly sins barring sloth and gluttony. De Grohn describes in often painful detail his displays of aggression, anger, ingratitude, manipulativeness, egocentrism, homophobia, racism and above all misogyny. Sean Monaghan, author of the one extended critical study of Herbert's writing, laments the failure of the biography to acknowledge Herbert's positive achievements but ends up disliking him just the same. As Harry Hesselstein said in his review of Monaghan's book, the case for the real genius of Xavier Herbert is not assisted by what appears to be the critic's increasing dislike for his author. On page 95, for instance, Monaghan identifies Herbert's twisted attitudes to women. On the following page, the focus shifts to his self-centeredness on a grand scale. As the study progresses, Monaghan reports his repulsion at, among other traits, Herbert's arrogance, his unconscious racism, his unquestioning assumption of masculine superiority, superiority. Most of it if, is probably true, but it does not lay a very happy foundation for the argument which occupies the last third of the book that Poor Photo My Country is a masterpiece. The worst of Herbert's vices, as Robert Darby says, appeared only after the success of Capricornia, the middle period, the last years, and more precisely in the 1950s when nothing seemed to be going right for him. It was then that he began prescribing and injecting himself with steroids for the purpose not only of maintaining his vigorous masculinity into old age, but also to maintain his creative viability. Over the next 30 years of that continuing drug regime, he became more angry, aggressive and paranoid. Thus, the dislike of him as a subject is at least a response to a drug-induced psychopathology in his later life which made him less tolerant but also enhanced his creative performance. In an age when steroid abuse is increasing worldwide and we do know that more and more athletes are presenting with psychiatric symptoms and disorders of mood stabilisation, including hypomania and in the long-term depression. I'm not denying Herbert's difficulties as a subject or the contradictions of his writing. Manning Clark was obviously correct when he said that Herbert wrote with the passion of a great lover and a great hater. It's hate, however, that seems to be mainly what we now recall. It's unfortunate, I think, that the fascinations of Herbert's psychopathology, partly brought on by drug abuse in his later life, seem to emphasise this hating at the expense of his loving. The limits of love depend upon the capacity for empathy. And in the 21st century, empathy is an undervalued virtue. It's also a vital one. Prejudice 
the inability to identify with another person has always been damaging on any other scale. But with the growth of the global economy binding different peoples and different nations more closely together, and with environmental degradation and climate change throwing human and non-human destinies into the balance, prejudice is clearly by far the biggest threat to world peace and prosperity, and empathy is the greatest hope for salvation. Herbert devoted his life's work to exploring the interplay of prejudice and empathy and to envisaging the emotional states and social destinies that would inevitably arrive arise from sacrificing either one to the other. As I said in my introduction to the recently published 40th anniversary edition of Poor Fellow My Country, the continuing relevance of that novel, and I would say of Capricornia also, is not contained in its reinterpretation of a particular set of events or a particular period of Australian history, however important that seemed at the time of publication in the 1970s or in the case of Capricornia in the 1930s. What's important is that these novels draw us into a process of identity formation whereby we become aware of how we might experience nationality, depending on whether we're white or black or some other colour or ethnicity, how we experience belonging or alienation or asylum, the states of being in between, and how that process affects who we really are individually and collectively. If books are machines to think with, Herbert has, a, Herbert has a lot still to tell us, I think, about the social function and the community value of art, the seductions of personality, both individually and collectively, and the morality of reconciliation. Thank you.